Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. So today we're going to feature one of our new co-hosts, Thomas Hughes, who was the the CDSN postdoc a couple of years ago. He was also one of our victims in the CDSN book workshop. Thomas, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing these days. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure and an honor to be a, a co-host on, on the podcast. So I'm currently the McKenna School Postdoctoral Fellow at Mount Allison University out in New Brunswick. The McKenna School is philosophy, politics and economics. So I've spent the past year uh, here in uh, Sackville, New Brunswick, contributing to the life and work of, of Mount Alice University. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, at the same time, I'm also the Deputy Director of the Centre for Defence and Security Studies, University of Manitoba, working quite closely with Dr. Andrea Charon, who was my supervisor when I was the postdoc with CDSN, which has been a, a fantastic continuation of that of that connection. Terrific. And what, what's your research these days? So the, at the moment, I'm really looking at the Arctic. I'm looking at how the United States and Canada are working together or perhaps trying to work together and not working together sometimes in aligning their defense and security operations uh, in the Arctic and how they're trying to respond to what we've seen, particularly from Russia in the Arctic and this conversation around militarization in the Arctic. And what does that actually mean in practice? And what does that mean in terms of the threats that are facing the North American continent? And again, uh, most importantly, where are those discrepancies and how Canada and the U.S. are trying to address those threats. Very cool. Well, uh, the Arctic is is hot these days because NATO just got a new member, Sweden, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. Well, the first thing is, is that we can't help but notice that you have an accent. People say I have a quaint American accent. And so people know that I'm a dual citizen from hearing when, when I say process rather than process. But <laughs> your, your accent is more distinct and distinguished because everybody loves a good British accent. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid so, yeah. Uh, no, don't be afraid. So embrace it. Reminds me of the scenes from Love Actually, where the young men wanted to go to the UK, to the US, because they knew that they would be more successful with their seductive English accents. So you're a permanent resident of Canada. One of the stories of the past couple of weeks is that we are very, very, very slow at processing the permanent residents that have applied to be members of the Canadian Armed Forces. Given that we're in the middle of a recruitment crisis and a personnel shortage. It would seem to be the case that if you suddenly have tens of thousands of people who are now eligible and interested in joining the military, we ought to get them in as fast as possible. So anyway, so what's your take on the story? Well, it's fascinating. And yes, uh, as you said, I, I originally hail from the other side of the pond. Uh, I'm not going to comment whatsoever on the connections with the Love Actually story about transferring to the United States from the UK. But I will say that I am a Canadian permanent resident. I have been for a couple of years and I became a permanent resident on through the spousal program. So my wife and I, um, my wife is Canadian and I say my wife and I now live in, in New Brunswick and I am a, a permanent resident of Canada. I spent the first day of my permanent new permanent resident status digging quite a lot of snow out of my drive, which I felt was, was quite appropriate. Really. Uh, but so this story has really appealed to me. This has been something that I've been tracking since the decision was made to start to uh, allow permanent residents as a Canadian permanent residents to join the Canadian Armed Forces. And I found this interesting because obviously Canada would not be and is not the only country in the world that allows non-citizens to join its armed forces. From the UK's perspective, the Gurkha regiments is a classic example of that, even before we get to the French Foreign Legion and the like. But we do have more parallels, uh, I think Australia being one, with uh, allowing permanent residents uh, to become members of the, the armed forces. But it felt to me a little bit, to take from, from what you uh, mentioned earlier, it felt to me like the decision was made 
because of a shortfall in personnel, not necessarily because there was an awareness of a particular skill set and expertise amongst the permanent resident community and population that the Canadian Armed Forces saw the benefit from drawing from. Obviously, that is part of it. Obviously, increasing those numbers, the pool, the talent pool that the, the CAF can from is going to be benefit all the time. But this feels like a solution to a recruitment and a numbers problem, which, as we've seen this year from the report, is a little bit more difficult to solve than simply throwing numbers of permanent residents at it. And one classic example, when I was looking at some statistics around permanent residents in Canada, I think from the, the last sentence, 12.7% of Canadian permanent residents have Chinese citizenship. And that's absolutely not to say that folks with Chinese citizenship or Canadian permanent residents wouldn't be appropriate for the, for the CAF, but it does of course raise some fairly serious questions for those who are going to be conducting that background screening. So it, it doesn't surprise me that there has been this backlog, but I think it's a, a difficult challenge to meet and it's one that is not simply going to be solved by throwing money and putting more people processing pieces of paper. Well, it's funny because I had a very different reaction, which was I read the story and I've had so many conversations with Canadian citizens who've it's taken a year, two years, three years to make it through the uh, recruitment process that mm. I think, you know, the, the story had, well, Canadian citizens will fly through the, the, the approval process. I'm like, which ones? So my, that was my first reaction was that Canadians have to get cleared too. And that process is really slow. And the attitude within the article was some officer saying, well, they're interested in it. We're not telling them no, we're just telling them to wait. Well, that that's part of the larger broken recruitment process, which is because all aspects of it are slow from processing the initial paperwork to getting the security clearances, to get the medical clearances, that you end up having people wait years. And by the time, you know, they finish that process, they've, lo they've lost interest. And that is not just a permanent resident problem. That is just a general problem. And so I think the article was a bit deceptive about it being, oh, wow. Now, my second reaction was, wow, they got tens of like 10,000 people interested <laughs> and they admitted 77 you know, if we're short, you know, the, the military is short by roughly 15,000, 20,000 people at this point. We're about 16% down, something like that. I, I think that's the latest statistic. Mm -hmm. Now, because they opened up the military to a pool of applicants that were other previously not eligible, you could actually fix the recruitment problem right now by giving people, getting, getting all 10,000 of these people instead of the yeah, then, so then suddenly your shortage is a matter of, oh, a few bits and pieces here and there, as opposed to, being down by 10 or 15%. So, you know, reading this article, it's like, wow, we have the fix. The fix is here. But then, of course, 77 out of 10,000 or whatever the number was, was just like, oh, of course. The... So I think my first reaction was the process itself of recruitment is utterly broken because it takes so long to get people into training bases. Mm -hmm. um, once you get them into training bases, then they're in and then they get sort of process. And, you know, for me, I think one of the article, one of the one of the people in the article suggested something, which was maybe we can get people into basic training without having the clearance stuff done. Because guess what, You're, nobody's learning any secrets when they're running laps or doing push-ups or learning how to fire a rifle or climb a hill. Uh, I don't know how long basic training is, but at least those months could be spent where the paperwork is churning. Now, obviously, they have to do the health stuff before basic training, so that we're not actually sending people through basic training that are get themselves hurt. But I think you raise a good point here about whether it's the right thing to do or it's a good thing to do. And right now it's sort of the good thing to do of, 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 of increasing the size of the calf or slowing the decrease of the size of the calf. But it, it was also the right thing to do, which is we want the Canadian Armed Forces to reflect the population. And right now, I wish you had done the, the, the homework and I should have done the homework of what percentage of Canadians of, of the population of Canada. Is I did do the homework. I did do the homework because I'm a goody two shoes. So according to, again, Statistics Canada, um, last year or 2022, there were 3.2 million permanent residents or landed immigrant non-permanent residents. And that came from the 2021 census. And uh, it were 431,645 new permanent residents in Canada in 2022. So there are significant numbers coming through. I think at one point I will just, just to push back slightly on, on the, the, your critique of the article, which I think is, is very reasonable. Uh, I think it's also worth saying that this is, uh, that, uh, it has not simply been 
a year. Uh, this is just the first year that the, the, the folks who are permanent residents who have been applying to the, through the, the Canadian Armed Forces. So it may well take a, a significantly more time than that. But I think the conversation about permanent residents is also interesting because really we, we should probably think about who is becoming a permanent resident. So are those who are applying for permanent residency doing so because they have a job offer in Canada already? In which case, they're unlikely to be immediately joining the Canadian Armed Forces because they're coming with that promise of a job. It, you know, it's, it's not a, a simple process, as I found out, to, to become a permanent resident in Canada. There are an awful lot of hoops to jump through, particularly if you're not coming through as a spouse or uh, as a family member. So I, I think Tell that is it. that question to ask as well. Yes, yes, you will be very much aware of that as well. So I, I think that that question as well around what sort of numbers of permanent residents applying to join the CAF in the future is also going to be an interesting conversation to have, because I do wonder whether that initial 21,000 applications or whatever it was, what percentage of the permanent resident population who are interested in joining the CAF will be represented by those the 21,000. And those coming in this year, next year, and in the future, um, whether we'll see similar numbers uh, going through that, that process. And whether we start to see people wanting to become permanent, member, uh, permanent residents in Canada because they can join the military. Does that become something that people apply to be a Canadian permanent resident to do. And that, I think, puts a very different spin on both the application process for permanent residency and also the application process for Canadian Armed Forces. Well, now you're touching on one of my favorite policy recommendations, which is in the United States, I don't know if it's true now, but it used to be true at least, and it helped to explain why there's a large Filipino population in San Diego, mm. is that one could join the military and then that would become a path towards citizenship, right? So it wasn't just a matter of people already here, okay, here you can join the military, but using the lure of citizenship in a wonderful country such as, as Canada these days, and America in our nostalgic dreams of the past, to become a citizen, you're willing to do some service to, to do that. And that was a way that the United States Navy was able to recruit people from the bases they had in the Philippines to join the Navy, fill out the Navy, and then they would settle in San Diego, which was a major naval base, several bases there. And so... Given that we have a recruiting crisis, it would make sense, for instance, to do that. Now, I, in my conversations with people, people have pushed back in a couple of ways. One is this is kind of colonial in mm -hmm. that you're taking the best uh, other countries and having them join your military so they could be cannon fodder. And that's like, well, that, that, that's kind of fair. But I think the, the criticism I've heard most is, again, taking people from abroad means more cumbersome security procedure. And for me, again, I am not an expert on on all the levels of the classification one needs to have to be in the military. But I'm pretty sure there's degrees of, of clearances that, you know, that privates and seamen and whatever the entry level is for aviator probably don't need to have top secret security clearances. And it speaks to something that we need to be more comfortable with, which is risk. But I, I think there is a further challenge in that, going back to the idea of who is eligible for permanent residency in, in, in Canada. And when you look at the points-based system, when you start to look at who is prioritised in that process, the prioritisation, particularly around education, would perhaps lean towards individuals who would not be wanting to remain at the entry level of the armed forces for very long. So I think there is also a potential disconnect there as well. If Canada is attempting to bring in a certain demographic of people from abroad as permanent residents, whether that is, to use your phrase from before, whether that is the population who would become cannon fodder, I think is, is not necessarily lining up in that way. So I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see whether that conversation happens between the CAF and the Im Canadian Immigration service and government around whether the needs of the Canadian Armed Forces are taken into account within the permanent residency process and application process. Well, I guess the big statistic in my fit that I was looking at a second ago is that roughly 20% of Canadians, 20% of the population of people residing in Canada right now are permanent, mm. 20%. And so it's really not so much about luring unsuspecting people off the streets of, of, of places elsewhere. But saying, hey, we've got a large chunk of people in our society who are already paying taxes 
already, uh, you know, aspiring to become citizens. They're doing all the right things. But we know that, as you know, and I know from having experienced it, it takes years to become a, a citizen. It seems to make sense while they're waiting to do that, particularly if they're younger people, this might give them a chance to get in, included in Canada to give back to their new country. It, it turns out that immigrants tend to be the best, most pa- more patriotic than people who have been living in the country for, for their entire lives. You feel that when you're at that citizenship ceremony, right? Well, you wouldn't know that. I do. I've been yes. at that ceremony a, a couple of times because I also got went to go, the one not fully for my wife and myself, but also <laughs> for my daughter. And so it seems like it's just a lost opportunity to say one fifth of the population of your country can't serve. And so I think you know, I was advocate of them opening up the permanent residence. As I said, I'm opening. I'm more risk accepted, so I'm willing to open up to you know people who are have applied for permanent residence but aren't permanent residents yet. I do think that the permanent residency process requires a fair amount of documentation about your past, and so yes. it would be nice. For instance, I had to get my fingerprint sent to the FBI. Of course, the fun part about that was I had to pay cash to somebody in Quebec, in Montreal, because they would take credit cards. Because of course they were avoiding taxes uh, uh, to send my to get my fingerprints taken to send them to to the United States. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. The more important thing is that the permanency process is a clearance process. It may not be the same level as what it takes to get a top secret uh, level clearance, but it certainly is a process, and it it's one of these classic things where the work is already being done by somebody. Can you trust somebody else's homework at least a little bit? And of course, the military will say, hell no. <laughs> but again, we live in a time where we're short, you know, tens of thousands of people. It's time to assume a little bit more risk in this way. The damage that, you know, uh, somebody in their first or second year, while again, the regular pr- clearance process is going on. We're not we're not saying that, I'm, I'm not saying anyway, that a permanent resident is going to be kept down at a you know, the level of first year infantry or, uh, you know, the most basic sailor for five or 10 years. It's the idea is let them in, let them actually belong to the organization. And then as they get their clearances done, then they can get more access to more secret stuff. Like to give you a different example of this, in the aftermath of 9-11, the United States realized that by compartmentalizing all this kind of information, that you could not put the pieces together. And that the FBI had some information, the CIA had some, some information, and they couldn't put the pieces together both because those organizations hate each other and simply the logistics of sharing information. So what the U.S. did was it made it much easier for somebody at a fairly junior level to get all kinds of information. And then what happened? We had Manning and Snowden download a lot of secrets, and that was damaging to U.S. foreign policy and U.S. defense policy. But that was the risk they took because they understood that by keeping everything in different boxes, you're just not going to be able to put pieces together for all kinds of intelligence issues. So in this case, the question is, what damage can allowing some people into the military? And for me, I'm far less worried about letting in somebody who's from China or from Bangladesh or India or Afghanistan. I'm far more worried about letting somebody in from, let's say, rural someplace of Canada who happens to be belong to a family that's involved in white supremacist activity. Yeah, I think I find that to be a much greater threat to both the legitimacy of the military and to its operations because we've been penetrated by spies before. We survived those experiences. They they do raise costs, but it's not as significant as, oh wow, we're training the next generation of white supremacists to engage in violence against our own people. It's a tough one. I am perhaps not quite as happy with the the risk as as you are, but I I you make a very compelling case and as you say it is a point of need Uh, and when we're looking for what the solutions are to make up that shortfall in Canada then this does seem to be if not a a shortcut to it it seems to be a very reasonable approach to to solving that challenge. I think it is going to throw up further conversations in the future especially within Canada and and what does it mean to be a, a member of the Canadian Armed Forces and being a Canadian member of the Armed Forces does that make a difference from a permanent resident who's a member of the Armed Forces? shouldn't but whether that will become uh, a point of conversation I think is is certainly one to, to watch and that point that you made about fast tracking Canadian citizenship I know that's part of the process that they already have in place as well so I think that is a, a really interesting incentive to encourage permanent residents or those who are looking for permanent residency to join the Canadian Armed Forces and as you said it brings back that concept of service both as a component of becoming a Canadian citizen but also reinforcing what the Canadian Armed Forces is for and that the service of Canada. All right. Now so that, that we've solved that problem, let's move on to something easier, something to celebrate, which is Viktor Orban and the Hungarian parliament 
voted to let Sweden into NATO, as somebody who studied NATO, as somebody who likes to hang out and study the Arctic, besides celebrating with some Swedish beer, what, what is the relevance of this, given your, your studies both on NATO and, and Arctic stuff? Yeah, it's fascinating. I, so lots of celebrations on X and other social media sites of, of folks being very happy about Sweden joining NATO and absolutely reflect all of those completely and utterly. But I also found it I don't know, a little bit of a anticlimax in the sense that we've been talking about this is probably going to happen soon for ages and ages and ages. And now it has happened. So, well, OK, here it is. So I had to sort of take stock of things a little bit and reflect again on, on what this was going to mean for NATO and actually the significance and the importance all of the NATO members now accepting Sweden as a member. I think whilst we've had Hungary holding out, for want of a better expression, for, for a long time. This is an indicator that it, the NATO allies can be brought together. And that in itself is, I think, important. In terms of the actual impact of, of Sweden joining, I mean, I think it's again been fascinating over the last 12 months to look at the conversations about the degree of integration that already exists between the Swedish armed forces and other NATO members. Obviously, they haven't been part of NATO, but I think what we've seen is that those connections have been there for uh, a long time, and it, it feels like that's going to be a pretty seamless addition. And obviously, there are going to be some big wrinkles. We, we know that's always the case, and they're going to be wrinkles that we didn't expect, didn't see coming. But I think that that's going to be a, a pretty seamless transition into NATO, again, partly because we've had a long time to prepare for this. Funny, because as of 2019, 2020, this was not something that we could expect happen. Oh. This, uh, this is all thanks to Vladimir Putin and his invasion or reinvasion of Ukraine. That it used to be the, the Swedish public couldn't imagine this, that the public opinion in Sweden was against this, the public opinion in Finland was against this. And so when we talked enlargement, Sweden and Finland were not part of our imagination set. So this is very much thanks to, to uh, the threat from the East. And it was slowed down not only by Orban, but by Turkey. So once Turkey accepted Swedish membership, and they bargained hard for getting various conditions placed on it by Sweden that Sweden has to have to chase out any potential Kurdish dissident that's running around Sweden, amongst other other conditions. Hungary would just be difficult because that's Hungary's job is to be difficult, and they were only going to go after Turkey went. But Sweden fought in Afghanistan, they fought. They were in the north with Germany and Norway, so they they pretty much did the same exact things as the Norwegians did, more or less, from what we've studied in, in terms of NATO and Afghanistan. It's a big deal actually for the Canadians because one of the challenges the Canadians face right now is they've committed to moving from a battle group to a brigade in Sweden. And we don't have the forces to do that. And the whole idea was to have other people contribute. And the challenge is, is not only do we, are we moving to that level, but so, so is Lat the force in Lat uh, Lithuania, so are the forces in Poland and Estonia, but also that one of the new things in NATO is having battle groups in pretty much every country close to Russia. So that's Romania, Bulgaria, Slovakia, I'm forgetting somebody else. Anyway, and so the importance of this is that Suddenly, there's another country that has high-quality troops who speak English that can contribute to some of these missions. And it turns out the Swedes are willing to send troops our way in Latvia. And that's a huge deal because one of my basic stances in the past, oh, I guess almost 10 years now, is that Canada was slow about making the decision and slow in the diplomacy after making the decision to join the effort in Latvia. And so we ended up getting really small contingents from countries that were less useful in Afghanistan. The best of the troops that we got in Latvia, the Italians and the Spaniards, were known for having pretty significant restrictions on what they could do and weren't all that helpful. And this time around, we were actually, I guess, talking to the Swedes. The Swedes are talking to us. I think they probably prefer to hang out with us because the Estonians speak a language that's very, very unfamiliar with Swedish. So anyway, whatever it is, we're now going to get the Swedes to hang out with us in Latvia, which makes everything much, much easier for us as we try to put together, again, 10 or 11 countries to put together a, a unit of three to 5,000 troops to not only deter the Russians, but as they've been talking about, to actually have the ability to thwart the Russians if the Russians were to try to attack. Now, that's all gotten much easier because we've learned that the Russians aren't really that good at war. And they've also attrited themselves. They've lost something like a couple hundred thousand troops in the course of, of this war that they've been misfighting in, in Ukraine. So the membership of Sweden is important for that. It's also important for being able to strategize and plan about how to reinforce Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia through 
Sweden. There were some concerns that the Russians might take Swedish territory at the opening stages of a war that would make it very hard for us to reinforce our troops in the Baltics. That becomes much harder now. And I'll, I'll mention one last thing before we get to the Arctic, which is I was talking to somebody this week about the war. And one of the striking things about this conflict has been what a bright, shiny line there is between NATO and not NATO. Mm -hmm. That Putin has and the Russians have not engaged in any violence on the others uh, against any NATO country. That the only time a NATO country, Poland, was struck by a missile, it was a misfired missile from the Ukrainians. Yeah. So given that we've had two years of war and that has been the sole spillover, that says something about the power of Article 5 and of NATO's deterrent. And so now Sweden and Finland are on the right side of that. Sorry, Ukraine. Sorry, Georgia. Sorry, other countries. You're on the wrong side of that. But this makes Sweden more secure. And it makes us more secure by Sweden being more secure. Because there's now not a way for the Russians to sort of bypass NATO and hit some targets behind us. It is a huge change for NATO with, with Finland and, and Sweden coming on, on board. And it does seem to provide a degree of completeness, which is quite satisfying looking at the map. <laughs> Which is which is good, and yeah, going going to your point about the the popular support, I think I can't remember exactly which polling agency it was that, I, but I, I seem to remember that between January twenty twenty two and June twenty twenty three, there was about a thirty percent increase in support for NATO membership, the Swedish population, which you know, up to mid sixty, almost seventy percent, which is I think again testimony to what impact Russia's invasion of Ukraine has, has had on, on the Swedish popular concept of their own defence and security. And in terms of the Arctic, I, it's it's really, really interesting because there's part of me that that thinks that, again, we've already seen that that Sweden is broadly aligned with the A7, the A8 minus Russia already. Russia's already aware of this. We know that the Arctic Council doesn't have a military focus. So if the Arctic Council is going to maintain its former role or retain its former role, then Sweden being part of NATO should not make any difference whatsoever. But it doesn't feel like that is going to be possible. It feels very much like, to me now, at, at least you do have NATO and Russia as part of the Arctic Council, despite the conversations that are intended to ensure that, that military affairs are not part of of the Arctic Council's mission. And as part of that, I think it's important to recognize that you know, Sweden sees the Arctic as a strategically strategically significant region as well. The way that they frame it and understand it in their policy, obviously there's there's a huge number of different facets to, to Sweden's approach to the Arctic, which are a social rather than military, but they do see it as a strategically significant reason. And because of that, I think they are going to be a big part of conversations around what happens in terms of NATO's Arctic military capability in Europe in particular. I mean, we, we saw late last week that the US landed a couple of B-1 bombers in Sweden as part of an exercise. And I think when we think just simply geographically around the Kola Peninsula and Sweden's proximity to that as well, the idea that that can become a base for long-range U.S. assets potentially also adds a different dimension to the security conversation in the high north in Europe. Yeah, we can tell you an Arctic specialist when you start bringing up the Arctic Council. Sorry, I'm sorry. It does so, have the, the coolest logo of any international organization ever. It's magnificent. Oh, now I have to Google what the Arctic Council logo looks like. I have no idea. Got a fox on it. But I I think, on it. Yeah. So I think when we, we talk about um, Sweden and NATO, and we've both touched on it and we can't beat around the bush further around Ukraine being kind of the central pole for a lot of the decision making in NATO and, and European defence. And the conversation that emerged in the article that emerged um, this week about Canada supplying 800 Skyranger R-70 drones that are going to be built in Waterloo, uh, Canada to uh, Ukraine, I found quite interesting. In some ways, it's seems like quite a niche story and it's 95 million dollars worth of goods but I, it, it created a couple of of thought-provoking components to me um, three and a half really the first one and a half is around the challenge of quantifying the amount of military aid and support that each different country is providing to ukraine i mean we've seen 
all of those charts. We've had all of those conversations around how much is, is being supplied. And this really demonstrates the complexity of that. I mean, alongside having to talk about percentage of GDP, percentage of military spending, actual dollar amounts, it's also absolutely the case that Canada is essentially spending money within a Canadian company. And one would presume and expect that that is going to feed back into the Canadian economy to a certain extent. So how do we account for those sorts of numbers when we're actually looking to, to quantify uh, contributions? The second, I think, um, is this a good news Canadian technology? And this is absolutely a case that, that Canada is producing good stuff that people are going to want, that, it, that, that has value. And I think that kind of sometimes gets lost in our consistent criticism of, of things that occur in, in Canada. And the third question it raised for me, and I, I would love to have, I'm sure that folks listening to this will know the answer far better than I do. I would love to know what the Canadian Armed Forces have been doing with the same sorts of pieces of equipment in terms of their training and force development over the past two years. Because if we're spending $95 million plus on Sky Ranger R-70s to send to Ukraine, have we also been spending similar amounts to give to the Canadian Armed Forces to start to understand this new way of engaging in warfare? Lots of good questions, and I, I think I've lost track, so you'll have to uh, come back to, to some of this. But I think one of the things that, that's going on in the United States has been there's been resistance by the Republicans to ship stuff to Ukraine. And so one of the strategies that the uh, Biden administration has, has done is to identify just how much of this money is being spent in the United States, that much of our assistance that's been going to Ukraine in Canada and the United States and by whoever has given the assistance is on building stuff domestically and then sending it there. And so that way it does all that stuff that people love, which is provide jobs for Canadians here or Americans there or whatever to, you know, create jobs, sustain jobs. We'd rather build the stuff ourselves that way we can, you know, employ Canadians. And then it's doing the second thing, which is it's fighting Russians without having the Canadians doing the fighting, right? So we have been able to fight Russia without any Canadian blood involved, or at least any direct Canadian blood involved. There have been some Canadians who volunteer to go over there as individuals or Canadian Ukrainians who've gone there and have paid a price for that. But in terms of the CAF, we haven't had any casualties in this war, but the equipment that was originally procured from the CAF for the military has been quite successful at eroding Russian military ability, which then means that our forces in Latvia are that much more secure and able to, you know, withstand a Russian attack. So it's a different way of buttressing our forces in Latvia by weakening, you know, one is to strengthen us, another is to weaken the other side. We've been very successful weakening the other side without, you know. Putting our own literally skin in the game. That's right. And yeah, and also again, to, to, to go back to that initial point, this has domestic effects as well. This is domestically positive move. But as I say, I think it, I think it's a really important point to remember because so much of our conversation ends up being this sort of narrow quantitative conversation about how much is being given. And people just look at the dollar amounts and that's seen as a, how much does a country care about Ukraine? And, and actually, there is, there is so much more nuance that goes into those figures that we need to be really careful uh, around uh, using them. Well, the larger stats really show that we haven't you know, I did see a figure that was going around Europe today about how much is being sent as a percentage of GDP and all the rest of it. We're, we're very far behind most of Europe. If we've got drone technology, we've seen that drones make a huge difference in this war. You know, if we can't spend lots more money, we should at least, you know, spend money and, and resources that make a difference. Our original contributions of artillery equipment made a huge difference and artillery shells made a huge difference. Unfortunately, we couldn't give that much of it, but it's the kind of thing that makes a dent. Whereas mm -hmm. I would say... We've also promised, you know, something like $60 million to help the Ukrainians fly their F-16s. But since we don't have the F-16s, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that $60 million is really all that helpful. Yeah, there was a photograph that the Royal Air Force uh, put on X the other day of, of talking about their support to uh, training Ukrainian crews to, to fly the F-16. And it had photographs of the crew members jumping into a grob tutor. And it made me really think of the RAF Luton encounter. I don't think that's an F-16 that they're, they're getting into there. And so, it, yeah, it is It is a challenge there. So do you think that this could represent, or this does represent, a sort of niche capability that Canada can lean into, whether it's for Ukraine uh, in the immediate term or as a medium-term capability to really push the technology 
around remotely piloted aircraft, the short range uh, remotely piloted aircraft. I definitely think that this is something we've been, we've given them drone cameras, we're now giving them drones. I definitely think that us developing this technology is good for our military, even if we're currently not stocking our military with them because we're giving them all to to Ukraine. I, th I think it definitely makes sense for us to get good at this particular thing because this war has revealed how important it is to have drones. I don't think anybody quite understood the potential for these things. I mean, there's been plenty of science fiction written about it, plenty of military speculation about it, but nothing tests uh, the equipment of warfare like warfare itself. And so, for instance, first year, we're like, oh, well, tanks are, you know, are useless because the Ukrainians are taking out all the Russian tanks. And then we, we give better tanks to the Ukrainians and they get trained in how to use them more, more intelligently. And it turns out the first U.S. M1 tank to be destroyed happened like this week, Basically, which suggests yeah. that they've been doing pretty damn well up till now because tanks are not invulnerable. They get, they get, they get broken, particularly in, in, you know, difficult circumstances. So we are learning a lot from this war. And one of the lessons we've learned is about the persistence of surveillance, that surprise is hard, massing your forces is hard, fighting in an organized fashion is hard because that everything gets picked up and then we have to figure out ways to counter their, their drones. We have to figure out ways to make sure that our drones don't get countered. So the Ukrainians are doing a tremendous favor by, yeah. by doing this. And, I, and I've, I've talked to people in the CAF about, wow, you guys keep on talking about how you're training the Ukrainians. Well, when this war is over, even as it's going on, they got to train you guys because guess what? They are the experts in fighting the Russians. We are not the experts in fighting the Russians. They Absolutely. have experience. And I think that, that point of, that you made about counter-drone warfare is also significant and is also worth saying in here. I mean, obviously, $95 million is a is a reasonable sum of money. I, I would I would be quite happy if somebody wanted to donate $95 million to me. But this is going to build 800 of these aircraft. And what last year, Ukraine was saying they were losing 10,000 a day. And they're also saying that they want the native ability to build thousands a day themselves. Yeah. And obviously that takes into account lots of different types and forms of remotely piloted aircraft. But I think it is also an indication when we talk about giving 800, and that is a fantastic starting point. But is 800 going to make the crucial difference on a battlefield? Over the medium term, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to, to justify that. So Again, like I say, I think it's a it's a great start and it's a great indication for me that the Canadian technology is valued and is valuable, um, but it has to be a starting point. All right. Well, the this covers sort of the issues that we wanted to talk about for today. There are other things we could have talked about. Tell me, you're the one who did the interview. In our next segment, we're going to have Mina Allender. Yes. What did you guys talk about? Uh, so... I, I don't want to spoil the surprise too much. Mina is absolutely fantastic. She's an, a real superstar. So really, we were talking about um, Finland and Germany and European defence policy. She wrote a couple of stupendous pieces of work uh, around European defence uh, over the past 12 months. And so I was really looking forward to having that, that conversation with her about how um, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine has, has changed uh, the way in which security and defense is understood, particularly, let's say, in, in, in Finland and, and Germany. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you, Thomas, for, for joining the co-hosting cycle uh, team for uh, the Battle of the Podcast. Glad to have you aboard, and I'm glad that you could do this interview for us. Good luck out there dealing with all the snow that you have to shovel. It hasn't been that much of a shoveling season for us back here in the middle of the country. And here in Berlin, there's nary any snow to be seen. Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Great. Talk to you soon, Thomas. Hello, everyone. I am thrilled to welcome our guest for today's podcast, Minna Alanda. I first met, if that's the right sort of word, uh, Minna on, on social media about 18 months ago. I think, like most of us, I spend far too much time on social media, and I was slightly despairing wading through the rising tide of what we could probably charitably call increasingly questionable takes on European defence, Ukraine and, and NATO and all of that sort of thing. And I came across a series of posts that absolutely blew me away and completely reoriented my understanding of Finland's defence policy and how European defence was structured. Uh, and I was absolutely delighted to discover that the author of this series of posts had in fact been publishing quite a lot of excellent stuff. So it gives me a great deal of pleasure to open that reading door to all of you as well. So Minna, welcome to Battle Rhythm. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with a little bit of background for those who, who might not have come across you. I know you've been working in some really interesting places. Perhaps you could give us a quick overview of where you're based at the moment and, and some of the things that you've been working on. 
Yeah, sure. Thanks. So right now I'm based in Helsinki, Finland at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. I'm here a research fellow and previously I lived for quite a long time in Germany. I studied there and then I worked there at the German Institute for International and Strategic Affairs. And excuse me, I actually have forgotten the, the proper English name of the institute apparently since I left. German Institute for International and Security Affairs, not strategic. Apologies. It's been already like one and a half years since I left, so it's been enough to uh, start forgetting uh, relevant things like that. All right. So, uh, yeah. So back in Germany, I worked more on EU affairs. And then after coming back to Finland, uh, as I mentioned, one and a half years ago, I've been working more on Northern European security uh, in the broader sense. Uh, Finland, Sweden joining NATO has obviously kept us all very busy at FIA. And then my other hat is uh, German foreign and security policy. And the fun thing about that is that I actually never intended to become a Germany expert, but it was more like that the topic chose me than the other way around because I just happened to live there for a long time. And then there was this like this intense need for explaining what's up with Germany, especially following Russia's full-scale invasion of uh, Ukraine uh, almost two years ago now. So Finland and Germany have always been quite close partners, especially in the EU. And there's been this idea that these two are very like-minded countries and that there was this kind of a little bit of a shock in Finland, like what's going on with Germany and why is their response the way it is? And, and, and there was just like this need to explain kind of both ways, because it also was a big surprise to many in Germany that Finland all of a sudden decided to join NATO. Fantastic. There's so many threads that I want to pull out on that series of topics. Um, and I'm delighted that it was fairly serendipitous that you fell into the German foreign policy uh, at the, the right time. Yeah. So I think that the first question that I'd like to start with, because I think a lot of us have some sort of understanding and awareness of how Germany has approached uh, Russia's uh, full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine. Can you talk us through in a little bit more depth about how that approach has changed since the invasion started and, and where we are now? Sure. So somebody recently, when I was uh, in Berlin late last year, described the current situation as a lot has happened, but not much has changed. <laughs> and I think that's kind of accurate in the sense that the full-scale invasion came as a huge shock to the government, the current government. They had been in power only for a couple of months at that point. I really don't envy them. Uh, it was a huge challenge because they obviously, like most governments, came into power with a very domestic political agenda and they were utterly unprepared for a war in Europe. And you could really see that in the initial response that took a while for Germany to figure out what to do about this. I think that for both Germany and France, part of the problem was that they had been leading the so-called uh, Minsk process and negotiations in this so-called Normandy format, uh, which involved Russia, Ukraine, Germany and France. And obviously that process failed after 2014 annexation of Crimea and the war in eastern Ukraine. So I think that both France and Germany had sort of a hard time kind of changing their approach from that mediator role into actually taking very clear action and like drawing the red line that Russia obviously crossed at that point. So one problem was that a couple of days after the invasion started on 24th of February 2022, German Federal Chancellor uh, Olaf Scholz gave a very strong speech about the so-called Zeitenwende, which has become like almost like a new German word internationally known. It's hard to translate, but it means something like a, a turn of times or like watershed moment or, or something like that. And it meant that, that this invasion was such a moment and basically changed everything. And it was a very strong speech. Uh, he formulated basically like a program of five points, uh, how to react to Russia's invasion and this, uh, this war. But then the problem was that the follow-up was typically for Germany quite slow. So it took a couple of months until the chancellor actually had figured within the government coalition, like, what does this mean in practice? And it took a long time to get the process going. There was a very intense debate that spring in Germany about heavy weapons and whether they should be provided or not to Ukraine, because Germany basically has this principle of not providing weapons to conflict zones. So that was a difficult discussion. Uh, there's so much kind of like historical baggage from the Second World War or both World Wars. 
that uh, it's a huge taboo for any German leader to do anything that could possibly make Germany responsible for another European war. But I think what was kind of like the point that Chancellor Scholz missed at that point was that the, the war had already started and kind of the worst had already happened. So you could notice that in the European discourse about the war in the first spring, there was kind of like this misconception or, or kind of like like this um, misalignment of comparisons to the different world wars. So mm-hmm. in the Baltic states, Finland, like closer to the closer to Russia, people immediately saw this as like a second world war scenario. And then in France and Germany, the idea was, and you could hear it in Macron's ideas about not humiliating Russia and so on. They were thinking more about like a Versailles uh, situation after the, the first world war. And, and there was this misunderstanding that the, the worst had already happened and the diplomacy failed to prevent it and russia had just chosen violence and that was where we were so i think that took like a while both in germany and france to kind of compute and digest Mm -hmm. by now germany has of course become in absolute terms the second largest uh, military supporter of, of ukraine which is great and very important germany has invested quite heavily into air defense uh, for ukraine and i think there's kind of like this question like is germany being bashed unfairly like does it not get the credit that it deserves by now and i would say yes and no in the way that germany really has supported ukraine a lot by now so there's no disputing that fact germany has sent a lot of equipment that has been very crucial in the war effort however it has often come with a significant delay the tanks were of course the main battle tanks were of course like the best example but now Germany is also still holding back the Taurus missiles, uh, which have, I think it's been like sufficiently established by now that they would be extremely useful for Ukraine. But here we get to kind of like the limits of the German support. So it's not unconditional. For Germany, it's very important that it can be mostly framed as supporting Ukraine's fight to defend itself. So this defensive logic is very important, especially for the chancellor. And and there's a lot of disagreement about this within the German government coalition. So we have to remember that it's not a monolith. But so the the chancellor has this kind of logic and you see it in the fact that he he always only says that Ukraine can't lose and Russia can't win. But he has so far never said that Ukraine should win. And that makes a big difference. And that you see in this fact that Germany is very willing and committed to helping Ukraine stop Russian missiles from hitting Ukraine. Ukrainian cities, hence a lot of air defense, for example. But the chancellor is not comfortable with helping Ukraine stop Russia from firing those missiles in the first place. That's fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. So I'm going to ask you the sort of counterfactual question that I suppose academically we're supposed to avoid, but it's the thing that's actually most fun in a lot of the cases. The big burning one for for me is what, what difference would Angela Merkel have made? If Angela Merkel was still in charge when the invasion had happened, do you think we would have seen any changes in German policy? It's pretty hard to assess, actually, because like one very remarkable thing after Merkel's exit from the stage has been that she has not been missed. I expected it to come very differently. I thought that it would take only a couple of months and everybody would be crying to get her back. But actually, like it's been quite interesting how her legacy has been sort of tainted by the obvious mistakes that she has made with regard to Russia, but also German energy policy and and many domestic policies as well. She basically didn't invest into anything that is relevant for the future, like digitalization, uh, the green transition, education, public infrastructure, all these things. So so those things, Germany has kind of fallen behind uh, on the standards of those things uh, in a European comparison and is is struggling kind of uh, with many things right now, like domestically as well. But then, of course, like the foreign policy has proven to have been kind of misguided. Mea culpas are not like a popular thing in German politics. So uh, Merkel has been very tight-lipped. She has avoided like really given interviews or so. And at some point she just kind of defended her actions and, and said that she bought Ukraine more time. I think that probably it could have been easier for Merkel to change course uh, in the sense that CDU doesn't have the same kind of pacifist wing and history as the social democrats have so so christian democrats as the cdu is the christian democrat party uh, which merkel used to be be the, the chancellor of so so Scholz has had this problem of not being able to unite his own party 
uh, behind himself. Plus that he himself has this personal history of being like against, for example, Cold War militarization processes in Germany and, and in particular this double decision of the Pershing missiles back in the day. So I think that like he was socialized very much in this kind of pacifist Cold War milieu and it makes it very hard for him to kind of like personally I think to to change course and I think maybe for CDU as a party it could have been easier because they don't have this kind of you know history and the, the pacifist wing and so on also Merkel was a much stronger leader within the party than Scholz has been uh, within his own party so those things could have made things easier but in the end it's it's very hard to assess because Merkel of course like it, it's hard for a politician if you have been kind of like making those mistakes that have led to such a massive crisis, I think it's hard for any politician to then like kind of just completely change course because it would require you to admit that you have made mistakes. That is partially also Scholz's problem because he was in high positions in many Merkel governments, also the vice chancellor in the last one. So yeah, I, I don't think that I have a very good answer to that. No, so that, I think that it could have been somewhat swift. It would have been definitely different, but then we could also ask kind of like if there hadn't been this political situation that Merkel was going out, Macron was kind of restricted by um, electoral politics in France that spring and Biden's massive Afghanistan failure. Who knows? I think that those all probably played some role in Putin's calculation when exactly to start this war. Mm. So. No, I think that's a great answer. I don't think you should do yourself <laughs> down on that at all. And I think the beautiful thing about these sorts of speculation um, is simply that you can't be wrong because we don't know. <laughs> So it's great to hear your your views on on how things could have changed because I think it it ends up helping us to better understand the dynamics of what is driving actions, decisions, and policy uh, when we start to think about changing that first step. So so that was that was great. <laughs> Just going back to some of Schultz's comments and commitments on on spending. I know not spending 2% of GDP on defense has been a stick that has been used to beat Canada with uh, in in recent times, notwithstanding any arguments about whether it's a realistic or reasonable measure. But I understand that Germany has now committed, has said that it is going to be spending 2% of GDP on, on defense. But I also sense perhaps a little bit of skepticism creeping in about whether that commitment is realistic, whether that spending is going to be spent wisely, appropriately. And is that skepticism fair? No, I think it's absolutely fair to have some doubts about this because as I've kind of mentioned already or indicated, like I don't think that any of this comes naturally to Schultz as a chancellor, like based on his psychology or, or so. You notice it when you listen to him speaking about aid for Ukraine or anything defense related that he doesn't like fundamentally understand what he's talking about. He's he's a lawyer like most uh, German leaders are. And uh, there's this like joke about Germany being a country run by lawyers. And you really noticed it last year when the constitutional court blocked the state budget for the next year due to this constitutional debt uh, limit. And, and that was like one of the most kind of concrete reminders of this fact that Germany is in fact a country run by lawyers. So there are several problems about the 2% commitment. Uh, Schultz has been reiterating it like often enough that you could think that at least like he means it for the remaining time he has in office right now and it looks good for the next couple of years germany is going to meet the two percent thanks to this special fund the 100 billion euro special fund that was announced in the title the speech uh, for the armed forces as this kind of like fast aid because the german armed forces where and still are unfortunately lacking many things there is that so it's to an extent this two percent goal is always a an Excel exercise, you know, like what do you count into it and what do you don't? And in the German case, as I mentioned, so right now, as long as these 100 billion euros are being spent over the next years, Germany will meet this goal. But already from 2027, 2028, the latest, there's a big question mark because the annual regular defense budget has not been set to raise regularly, like, and especially not, not by far enough because we are looking at a gap of like some 20 plus billion euros, which is huge, obviously. So there is this big question whether what's going to be done about that, because it's sort of like unrealistic that 
Germany will manage to raise the regular defense budget so much and that it's even possible like in the in the couple of years that remain until this like special fund is used and then the question is like would there be another special fund but then you again get into these like constitutional problems like whether that can be even done so I think it's fair enough to have some doubts about whether this commitment is really feasible there is like a certain element of kind of like procrastinating it into the next government's problem <laughs> and, and then there's also the question of course of like how it spend. Germany is right now buying a lot off the shelf and especially from the US because the US is basically more or less the only country that has anything on the shelves. <laughs> so France doesn't like that very much and there are these kind of like long-term strategic questions as well about Germany's role in the new European security architecture that is yet to be defined and built. So those processes would need to be quite actively kind of combined. Uh, right now there's maybe a little bit of sense of panic buying. <laughs> I would say that it applies to both Germany and Poland actually as well to an extent. So there is a certain question of also rising costs due to inflation and high interest rates. So Germany is going to get a lot less for those 100 billion euros than expected initially. Fantastic. Thank you ever so much. And so I want to to pick up that thread about the European security architecture for a moment, because I think this is an area of, of real interest. And I thoroughly enjoyed, I think you had two papers, one, the, the Europe's lack of leadership, small states, time to shine, and France and Germany engine in reverse gear, which I really, really enjoyed a reading and were, were really provocative. And from my understanding, what, what you're saying is that there are potentially a new, or there is potentially a new security architecture coming, and we could see small states, not France and Germany, and taking those sorts of leadership position. So the question I have for you in there is essentially, what does those small states leadership look like? Are you envisaging groups, regional groups of small states or individual states usurping, for want of a better word, France and Germany and, and leading European defense? Well, that's an excellent question. And by the way, thanks for taking the time to read my publications. I'm always delighted when somebody actually does that. <laughs> I would say that there are different approaches that small states can take. You can see it in the Baltic states public diplomacy, for example, that they have their own signature style, which is being very loud and kind of like building up maximum public pressure so that they can't be just overrun behind closed doors where they don't have so much weight as as bigger countries. So there, there is that way. Estonia has been very forward-leaning when it comes to, to Ukraine, just like the other Baltic states as well, Latvia and Lithuania. Lithuania has, has already like a quite a significant and long track record of being very forward-leaning on many diplomatic issues regarding, for example, so Taiwan, sometimes kind of provoking some reactions also from Russia on those on those things. So that is like one way to do it for mm. very small states like the, the Baltic states who have limited population and economic weight. And then the, the Nordics are, of course, like another uh, group of states. And, and here it always the question is a little bit about like, what exactly are we talking about? Are we talking about the EU or more NATO? In the EU, the impact of the Nordic group is limited because Norway and also Iceland are not part of the EU or, or are not members. So I, I would expect the Nordic group to become quite visible within NATO uh, as this kind of like-minded group and, and, and so on. And But as I mentioned, so within the EU, it doesn't work quite the same way. There it's more like this kind of Hansatic League or like northern, wider Northern Europe, uh, including also the Netherlands, sometimes potentially also Benelux, although they tend to more like side with the like rather Western European powers. Germany's position is a little bit a question here, like, will it be because like Germany is geographically leader in the middle of Europe. So everybody wants something from Germany. And it's not always easy for them to kind of navigate all these demands <laughs> coming from everywhere, especially in terms of defense, Germany has limited resources. So it has to focus and, and the focus is right now very strongly on the Baltics. This Lithuania permanent brigade that, um, that the um, Defense Minister Boris Pistorius pledged just this summer. So Germany is now like making an effort to try to set set it up. It's going to take some years, uh, which it, in itself tells a lot about the current status of European security affairs. That it takes a country like Germany several years to set up a brigade and deploy it to to a foreign country. Obviously, it's also on the Lithuanian part. They will need to build the necessary infrastructure. There are a lot of questions regarding that that are not only like on Germany, but anyways. I think that there are like sometimes single small countries can maybe manage to have a voice, but it's 
probably always better and, and the more feasible way of exerting influence to build coalitions, uh, like like-minded coalitions. In an optimal case, we might be seeing more of that. And it could be actually good for European democracy if you had to kind of like be more open about your positions and like be also more public in a way about your positions and kind of negotiate with countries to find kind of like like-minded countries and so on. And, and it, it could make it more political in a way, for example, within the EU. But of course, for example, in the EU, power still is defined very much in economic weight. And there, Germany remains by far the largest economy in Europe. So lots depends also on Germany's economic uh, development and, tra and trajectory and whether Germany's economy will decline or will Germany master the challenges it's facing currently. So, so those kind of questions are also very relevant because power is not so straightforward in that sense that it depends a little bit on the institution that you're talking about as well. I think this is really interesting and, and your point about the Germany being in the middle, I, I also wonder when, when I've been trying to conceive of a, a new European security architecture is that you know, Germany, as you said, sort of has that, that both advantage and disadvantage of being in the middle and, and understanding that a lot of the, the, the Nordic states and Northern European states have a very different concept of, of what constitutes a proximate threat to them than the Southern European states. So if we see Germany and France no longer as the, the central pillar, if you like, of European defense, so we'll Britain aside for the moment, if we no longer see Germany and France in that, that position, what happens to that discussion between the Northern European states and the Southern European states about where the priority should be? I mean, we often talk about you can't do everything all at once. If you have, if everything's a priority, nothing's a priority. So I, I think that's going to be really, really interesting to watch unfold mm. over the next few years. So. And given, given that um, your knowledge of and, and residence in Finland, I think it would be remiss of us not to talk about Finland at least a little bit. And the one, one question that I really would love your, your input on is that it seems like there has been an awful lot of talk entirely reasonably about what Finland brings to NATO. And there's going to be a lot of material on that. But I want to flip it round. And what is NATO bringing to Finland, both in a good way? And what are some of the challenges that Finland might have now that they are a member of NATO, rather than going in their own direction uh, and being able to do what they see fit without having to worry about what the rest of the alliance structure is thinking? So what Finland expects from NATO and, and what was basically the main reason why Finland decided to join when it did was nuclear deterrence and security of supply. So Finland is somewhat of an island if you look at the map. So we are kind of like here, like very far up in the northeastern most corner of Europe. And we're very dependent on the supply lines to the Baltic Sea you know, for both commercial and like it will be also in the case of a military conflict, very relevant to, to make sure that like the supply can't be cut off. And then the other, especially like military relevant supply line is through the so-called UK gap, so the Greenland, Iceland, uh, UK gap. And like you would imagine troops and reinforcements and equipment arriving from Northern America um, at the North, uh, North Atlantic coast of Norway. And, and then being kind of transported from there over to Finland. So those are like kind of big challenges for Finland. Like if you think about the potential crisis and, and conflict and looking at what has happened to Ukraine, that Ukraine has to be kind of like, has been pleading for equipment. So the idea was kind of like, we want to have all this like contractually fixed kind of, so that we don't end up in that kind of a situation where like you don't have full control over what kind of means you have to defend yourself. And also so that you don't end up just with thoughts and prayers. We did in the winter war, uh, more or less, back in the second world war when the Soviet Union attacked. And so, so that was one main interest. And then of course, the, the, the other one was to maximize deterrence. And I think that that was a great kind of favor that both Finland and Sweden did to NATO by kind of confirming that NATO's nuclear deterrence, so that the extended nuclear deterrence by the US uh, that comes with, with NATO and the Article 5 collective defense, that that is the best deterrent on the market. So those were basically the two main factors affecting the calculation in Finland. So that's basically what Finland expects. And the funny thing is that like our NATO policy is still like not in a very advanced stage. Uh, so we are expecting a bigger government report on a defense policy to come out sometime this, I think, spring or summer. And that should be kind of like then like the guiding document for Finland's NATO policy. But 
since the accession happened so fast, it was the record fastest accession ever. So it didn't give us a whole lot of time to figure out like what is actually our NATO policy. And it's, it's not that easy to go from this so-called spirit of the winter war that we lived in for 80 years, like which meant that like you always have to be prepared to defend yourself alone and you can't expect any help to all of a sudden being a member of an alliance. So there's this joke in Finland right now that Finland has joined NATO, but uh, the Finnish Defense Forces haven't yet <laughs> because it, it will take a while to kind of like reconfigure that mentality as well, bring in the interna- internationalization into the armed forces and so on. Obviously, Finland has been a very, very active partner, like one of the most active NATO partners uh, until now. So there is a lot of like both kit and human interoperability, but still like these kind of doctrinal changes take take a while. In a way, this like in a kind of macabre way, with hindsight, this was maybe the best moment for Finland to join NATO in the sense that we were proven pretty accurate in our assessments how to handle defense and and our national defense so there's not much expectation for finland to change a whole lot of things because we actually have many elements still in place that most especially Western European countries just gave up and abolished after the Cold War, such as the conscription army, which gives us a very large reserve. We've seen how important like troop generation ability is uh, in this war. And then things like lots of heavy artillery, one of the largest in all of Europe, air defense, uh, strong air force, so on. Also long range fires, Finland is pretty strong in. So in a way we have seen in Ukraine that Russia has acted quite a lot the way that Finland expected it to, and we have the capabilities that Ukraine has been seeking to to get. So in that sense, it's not a it's not a huge change on the surface, but then below the surface, on the mentality side, it's it's not just like plugging in, uh, like it was kind of presented to an extent in the Finnish discourse. But that brings me to the last point, which is which has been kind of like funny to observe for me personally as an analyst that then Finland was welcomed to the alliance there was great excitement about us joining and then it was just like so great to have you guys like welcome so what would you like to have like would you like to have an EFP contingent in Finland or like yeah like a NATO base what's your ambition and then Finns were like almost offended like what we don't know anybody we don't need anybody here like we're gonna take care of our own turf kind of like and and you could notice it in that to a certain extent that there was this there's still this very strong idea that like we can defend ourselves we just know that like it will be for a limited time and then like um, that ability is still limited so but uh, so this will be kind of like a learning curve how to NATO <laughs> in a way like also the, the political side of NATO like Finns had this idea that it's a very mighty military alliance but turns out that it's actually a very political organization with complicated internal diplomacy and politics so learning to navigate that is also one thing we got like a lesson from Turkey in a way how that works or doesn't so there's a lot to NATO the closest partner but there's still a significant difference between like full membership and just a partnership. And one element is the sheer amount of paperwork <laughs> that has been like, like for a sh- small country, these kind of things can be overwhelming. Like when, when you just, when it's just thrown at you, like in masses and masses, and then it keeps coming and all the desks are like over flooded and stuff. But yeah, I think we're in making good progress there. And, and luckily, since we are right now very spot on with our defense system, so we don't have to go through any kind of huge military adaptation. But personnel is also another thing. So because of the reserve army that we have, Finland doesn't have a very huge officer corps. So the requirements of the personnel requirements from NATO and like what is expected from Finland in terms of personnel into the NATO structures, especially if Norfolk or while Norfolk is being scaled up, they are like we're kind of looking for officers like from where do we get these officers from and also that the Finnish officers officers tend to be lower ranking because of the reserve army and since it's not a professional force mainly so it's gonna be a little like you can't it's, it's a bit awkward to send captains uh, where like others have two stars and generals so this is this is another like particular challenge for Finland because of our conscription system Fantastic. That is really, really interesting. There's so much, so much to to talk about there um, a little bit further, but I think uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So Mina, thank you so much for for coming on to Battle Rhythm. I think you've been a a, a real pleasure to speak to and hopefully we'll speak to you again in the not too distant future. I hope so too. Thanks so much. This is fun. (laughs) 